Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Eric Richardson and I'm a lay elder here at Southside. It is an absolute honor for me to be bringing you God's word today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to the book of Jude. The book of Jude is in the New Testament and it's right before the last book of the Bible in Revelation. Jude is somewhat a neglected book, but an extremely important one. So this morning, through the book of Jude, I want to exhort you, to encourage you with two things. First, I want to give you confidence. I want to give you assurance that everything will be okay. I want you to see that those who are believers can have confidence that God will keep you to the end. And secondly, as Christians, we have work to do. We have a job. We must be ready to contend for the faith. As many of you know, I'm a pilot. I've been flying airplanes for over 20 years. Twice a year, I have to go and train on the specific airplanes that we fly. An examiner will test me on my knowledge of the specific aircraft, specifically how the aircraft systems work and what to do if something goes wrong. The examiner will put me in a simulator and will test me whether or not I can fly the airplane, as well as what I will do in case of an emergency. In 99 out of 100 flights, everything goes as planned. Praise God, right? But in case something happens, they train me to know what to do if something doesn't go as planned. As a pilot, this gives me great confidence. If something happens, I will have most likely experienced something similar. This experience will help me get the aircraft on the ground safely. Jude is writing here to give Christians confidence in their identity as believers because he is going to call them to do something hard. We need confidence in order to persevere in the faith. The main idea of today's sermon, which is also why Jude wrote the letter, is found in verse three. Jude is finding it necessary to write to appeal to believers to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit about this letter. Who wrote the book of Jude? Verse 1 tells us that it is Jude. So who was Jude? We can know a lot about someone by the way that they talk or by the way that they write about themselves. And here, Jude makes two significant claims. First, that he is a servant of Jesus Christ. And secondly, he is the brother of James. Jude recognized Jesus as the Messiah, which meant his whole life was devoted to serving King Jesus. There was no longer him living for himself. There was no turning back. The Apostle Paul in Romans and in Philippians and Peter, along with Jude and James, all refer to themselves as servants of the Messiah. What a change for these men. Do you remember Jesus' brothers before the resurrection? John chapter 7, starting in verse 2, says this. 
Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus' brothers did not believe in him, let alone call themselves servants of Jesus. What a change in these men's lives. What's interesting to note here is that Jude identifies himself as the brother of James. This James was also the brother of Jesus, which meant that Jude was Jesus' brother. They were the sons of Mary and Joseph. Why didn't he identify himself as the brother of Jesus? James, in his letter, also did not identify himself as Jesus' brother, but as his servant. Why? Both he and Jude do not appeal to their blood relation. There's no inside track. He doesn't emphasize his brotherly relationship with Jesus, but his submission to the Messiah's lordship. So this morning, we'll be working through the first four verses of the book of Jude. In those verses, I have three points for you today. Number one, a Christian's identity who we are. Number two, what he is calling Christians to do. And number three, why contending for the faith is necessary. So let's start at number one, a Christian's identity, who they are. Look at verses one and two in Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. The emphasis here is on what God has done in their lives, not on how they've responded to God. The fundamental identity for Christians is God's love for them. Jude is addressing these churches as those who are called what did it mean for someone to be called? Flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When God calls a person, he calls them from death to life. It's God being rich in mercy because of the great love for us that even when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. It's by his grace that we have been saved and have been given the gift of faith. Notice here in Ephesians and in Jude that this is our triune God doing the work. We receive the benefits of salvation because it is God who calls us. It is God who loves us. And it is Jesus who keeps us. From the beginning, our calling is God's doing. Romans 8.30 says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. To those whom God calls will be justified. And those who are justified will be glorified. Believers are powerfully and inevitably brought to faith in Jesus Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. That's what we read in Romans 10. And as Jude mentions here, are ultimately kept by Jesus until the end. This is a believer's fundamental identity. Our calling means we are accepted, we're forgiven, we're adopted, and we are kept in the family of God. This is our confidence in this life. If someone were to ask you, how does God love you? What would you say? Would it start with the word I? Because I walked an aisle, I said a prayer, I've acknowledged that there is a God. I'm mostly a good person. I go to church, I read my Bible, I even pray occasionally. Is our calling dependent on what we bring to God or what we do in our life? Does he love us only when we are good? Jude reminds us that it is God who calls us, which ultimately means he loves us and keeps us to the end. The love of God is seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let's consider our own calling today in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, 
who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, we are loved by God, not by how good we are or what family we come from or, or even the things that we have done in our life. We are loved by God through what Jesus has done on our behalf. This is how God loves us. He might bless us with a lot of things in this life, but fundamentally, the one thing that matters is that through his son, we can be with our creator God one day forever in his presence. Our boast, our plea is through the substitutionary death of Jesus. Jude also describes the call not only as being loved by God, but as being kept by Jesus. He also mentions being kept at the, of this letter in verse 24 in Jude. He says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. The same grace that called believers to faith will sustain them until the end. Jude refers to the continuous preservation with which Jesus keeps those who trust in him. The idea of being kept or being guarded comes up in several passages. 2 Timothy 1.12 But I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are being guarded by God's power in our life through faith. We can have assurance in our salvation and in our identity because he will keep us to the end. Does this mean that we can just sit back and do nothing in our Christian life? Jude's emphasis on God's grace here to believers does not cancel out our human responsibility. Look at what he says in verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. The readers of this letter are exhorted to keep themselves in God's love. Which is it, Jude? Does God keep us to the end? Or do we keep ourselves in the love of God to make it? Yes. God's grace in our lives should not promote laziness or passivity. This is what is happening in this letter. Certain people have come in to the church and are distorting the grace of God. This should stir believers into action. Does God keep us? Yes. Do we need to keep ourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. Flip over to 2 Peter chapter 1. 
2 Peter 1, verse 10 says this. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. What qualities is Peter talking about? Let's look back a few verses. 2 Peter 1 verse 5 says this, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. All of these virtues grow from an understanding of the gospel. We are kept for Jesus, but we also need to keep ourselves in the love of God by going deeper into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jude represents God's divine sovereignty and our human responsibility. Then in verse two, he prays that mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to them. Again, here Jude is writing to the believers to be reminded of their identity on what God has done for them in Christ. Mercy and forgiveness are the foundation of our relationship with God. God's forgiveness through Christ leads to peace with him, which ultimately demonstrates his love for you and I. There is not something more in this life that we graduate to. Jude prays that they would understand more of their fundamental identity. This is our confidence. This is why ultimately we'll be okay. This is why we can have assurance in our salvation. Point number two, what he is calling Christians to do. Look at verse three. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude wants to write to them about their common salvation, but he feels like he has to write to them to contend for the faith. This is his purpose in writing the letter. This is what he's calling this church or these churches to do. And I would argue is what he's calling all believers to do. We have work to do. This word contend here refers to an intense struggle or an intense effort, a fight. Something is happening in the life of these churches that he is writing to. We find out in verse 4 that some have crept in their churches unnoticed who are perverting the grace of God. So he is exhorting them to contend or fight for the faith. What is the faith here that Jude is referring to? Jude tells us that this faith was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith he mentions here is not merely a trust in God, 
but a body of beliefs about the teaching of his son. It's what the early church devoted themselves to in Acts chapter 2. It was the apostolic teaching and the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The church was to be nourished by the teaching and the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 tells us that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The apostolic teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ was to be the hallmark of authentic Christianity. There would be no corrections, no improvements to it. The gospel stands as unchanging. So what is this faith or the faith? What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Our triune creator, holy God, created all things and loved us despite of our rebellion. We deserve his judgment and wrath and separation from him because of our sin. In his love, God the Father sent his son to take on flesh. In the incarnation, Jesus lived a perfect life of love and obedience to the Father, the life we should have lived but have not. Then Jesus offered a perfect life as a substitute for our rebellious life. On the cross, God's wrath was poured out fully on Jesus. All of our sin was laid on him. It was on the cross that Jesus died as a sacrifice for us. He took the punishment that we deserved. But he didn't stay there for long. On the third day, God raised him from the dead. Jesus made purifications for our sins, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning. God's word says that whoever repents from their sin and turns and believes in this Jesus will be forgiven and brought into a right standing with God and given eternal life. This is the message that Jude is calling them to fight for, to contend for. So let me ask you, are you convinced of God's love for you? Do you know that God loves you? Do you know what God has done for you in Christ and that because of your sin that you are separated from your creator? Do you know that Jesus came to die on the cross for your sins and that by believing in him and turning from your sins, you too can have eternal life? There's not a more important question in this life that we must answer. If you have questions, you can find someone, anybody here, any member, staff, elders, deacons, we'd love to talk to you and pray with you. If you are convinced of his love for you, are you contending for the faith? Our identity is crucial. If we are not convinced of his love for us, we won't fight or contend for the faith. Before we contend for the faith, we must know and believe his great love for us. Jude is telling them that those who are kept for Christ contend for Christ. God's sovereignty in salvation doesn't lessen our desire to contend for the faith, but it stokes it. 
So how do we contend for Christ or fight for the faith? Let me give you five practical ways that Jude mentions in verses 20 to 23. Number one, build yourself up in the faith. The most holy faith is the revelation of Jesus' life, his death and resurrection that has been handed down by the apostles and prophets with Jesus being the cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. It's in this that we as Christians must build ourselves on. Jesus is the object of our faith. The Christian must study the scriptures if we are to grow in the faith and to help the body of Christ grow. The faith is most holy because of its message and the moral transformation that it produces. Through the Spirit's help, we become more like Jesus. Number two, we pray. Verse 20 says to pray in the Spirit. We display our dependence on God in our prayer life. Ephesians 6.18 says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. Believers cannot keep themselves in God's love without depending on him through prayer. So we pray continually. Number three, keep yourselves in God's love. We have already seen that being preserved or being kept in in God's love will only be a reality if believers continue to grow in their understanding of the Christian faith and if we pray. One commentator writes that those who trust in Christ remain in the faith because of the preserving work of God the Father. Nevertheless, the promise that God will keep his own does not nullify the responsibility of believers to persevere in the faith. God keeps his own, and yet as believers, we must keep ourselves in the love of God. When things get hard, when suffering happens, when false teachers arise, preach to yourself God's love for you and to others on what Christ has done for you on the cross. Number four, wait for the mercy of God. The word wait here refers to the second coming of our Lord Jesus. In Titus Chapter 2, believers are instructed to wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is through this hope and the realization of the mercy he has given us now and the mercy that he will give us at his second coming that will help us finish well. What happens to Christians at the end? What happens when we die? We get Christ. We get Christ, our Savior. We get to be with our Savior because of the love in which he poured out on us. Number five, we disciple and evangelize. In verse 22, Jude tells the church, to have mercy on those who doubt. In the Christian life, we will have doubts. We will question God's love for us. As believers, we must come alongside one another and encourage one, one another with the truths of scripture and in prayer. This is what meaningful membership is all about. 
It's building up one another in the faith through exhorting them in God's love and praying for them and with them. When Christians begin to waver, it's time for us, the church, to come alongside them and help them. We must invite them to coffee. We must have a meal with them. We must know the faith well in order that we may convince them of God's mercy even in their midst of doubt. Then in verse 23, he tells us that some within their church are on the wrong path and they need to be told that. They have been given way to false teaching. They are unbelievers. We must do it by the mercy that we have been given and in the fear of the Lord. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. As Christians, we implore the ones around us on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. This is how we contend for the faith. Number three, why contending for the faith is necessary. Let's read verse four. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. You see, intruders have come into the church and are distorting the grace of God. They have slipped in without others noticing. They are deceivers. They are ungodly. They are using the grace of God as an excuse to give themselves over to sensuality. They are rebellious in their denying of Jesus. These are not people who are outside of the church. These are people who have crept inside of the church. But this doesn't surprise him. Jude tells the church that long ago they were designated for this. Turn over to verse 17 of Jude. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. This was prophesied about long ago and now it has been fulfilled in the life of these churches. There are people in the church who are devoid of the Spirit, meaning unbelievers. Paul reminds us in Romans 8 that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The Old Testament, the teachings of Jesus, and the apostles' teaching warn against these false teachers. They are treating the fact that God graciously accepts sinners as a license for their own immorality. They are godless men. In verse 5 through 16, Jude will describe them and their sins from different Old Testament examples and will also point to judgment and condemnation that awaits them. Titus chapter 1 verse 16 reminds us that they profess to know God but deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So we must be on guard. We must fight 
for the faith. If it happened in these churches, it can happen in our own. In the midst of the struggle in these churches, of these false teachers, Jude knows who wins the battle. We as Christians know who wins. But we have work to do. Look at verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God wins and he will be praised. He will have dominion and authority both now and forever. This gives us great confidence and assurance that God wins, yet the battle must still be fought. There is a lot of wickedness and immorality in the world. We shouldn't be surprised by what non-Christians do. The focus here in this letter is the immorality that is inside of the church. Why are we so quick to excuse and ignore the immorality of professing believers? What damages the gospel most is when Christians act like the world. One of the reasons we are so committed to meaningful membership and church discipline is because of these stark warnings. Church membership and believers' baptism guards the front door of the church. Through the testimonies of professing believers, we are able to see, although not perfectly, what their life was like before Christ and what their life looks like after. There should be a visible difference. Then in the life of the church, if someone starts to wander from the faith or is in sin, we go get them. Right? Matthew 18. We encourage them, as Hebrews 3 says, what Blake read earlier, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, he says this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, big D, drawing near. This is what meaningful membership is all about. It's discipleship. It's about asking the hard questions. It's about making much of Christ as we do life together. We must be on guard. We must fight and contend for the faith. We must contend for the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing less than the faith is at stake. So we need to know the who, who we are, our identity as believers. We need to know the what. We need to know what we are called to. We are called to contend and fight for the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ within our own church by building ourselves up in the faith, by praying, 
by keeping ourselves in the love of God, by waiting for the mercy of God, and by discipling and evangelizing those around us. Lastly, we need to know the why. We contend for the faith because we know the church will be attacked from within. We need to be ready by knowing our identity. Those who are kept for Christ will contend for Christ.